0: Welcome to the Laws of Style, featuring conversations on creativity, fashion, and the law from the leading edge of our economy and culture. Hosted by noted fashion lawyer, Douglas Hand.
1: I'm joined by two menswear industry veterans and founders of a fashion consulting group, E2. A more direct-to-consumer model is, is both enabling, but also potentially presents higher barriers to entry
2: the wholesale accounts, Saks and Barneys and Blooming's, and that used to be the, pretty much your one and only way to enter the market. The rise of
1: the influencer as as a viable model.
2: I think it's the model of the future. If you can have launch a brand with a built-in following, those, those, those fans already built in, that's how you're going to succeed. Collaborations.
1: Have, have sort of reached a bit of an apex.
0: And so some part becomes like, why are we all spending that same dollar? We all spending a dollar, five bucks to get the same one. We can spend one dollar to get the same one instead.
2: It's almost become too saturated. It's almost like another one, another one, another one. Like how?
1: Hello, and welcome to the podcast, The Laws of Style. Downloading to you from the offices of HBA, high above Bryant Park in the fashion district of New York City. I'm your host, Douglas Hand, fashion lawyer, fashion law professor, and self-styled well-dressed man. For this episode, I'm joined by two menswear industry veterans and founders of a fashion consulting group, E2. Eric Jennings, who will go by EJ for the portion of the podcast, and his partner, Eric Olin. Gentlemen, welcome.
2: Good to be here. Thank you for having us.
1: So, Really, just tell us about your background, um, which, uh, you know, respectively, and and how each of your career paths led you to form E2.
2: Oh, that's a, that's a simple question. <laughs> Want me to go? You go. EJ EJ speaking here EJ first. goes. Yeah, I've I, uh, been in the fast industry for 20, 25 years now, and uh, was not my initial plan to go into, into fashion, but I ended up getting a job uh, in New York City. I grew up in California. And kind of fell into the industry and fell in love with it and found my path. And and over the course of my career, ended up as the fashion director for menswear and home and beauty at Saks Fifth Avenue. So I was there most recently for nine years. And that's kind of where I made a name for myself in the industry. And through that uh, position at Saks, I met Eric Ulin and And so we've known each other for about six or seven years when he started working at uh, Jay Lindenberg and we worked together to bring the brand into into Sachs, back into Saks Fifth Avenue and then we can uh, talk more about the trade show because we work closely at the trade show that he was involved with as well.
0: Yeah, my background I think if you ask somebody 20 years ago when I got from college like who'd be least likely going to get into fashion, that'd be me. Um, but that kind of came as a fortunate incident where I think it was like 7 years ago I was doing restructuring and turnaround consulting at FTI FTI Consultings. I was at dealing with the Lehman Brothers bankruptcy at that point, um, which was interesting, not fun. Um, and I got an email one day from a friend of mine who was the, the global CEO of Jay Lindenberg asking me if I knew somebody who might be interested in taking over the US when they're buying out the joint venture. And I said, sure, I sure do. And then three months later, I had that job for everything that, that had to do with it. So that was really my interest into into fashion. and. You know, it was a, uh, I mean, a steep learning curve from there. And I got to learn from from Eric, like part of like from in the SAX group. But then after about four and a half years there, I was offered to run the menswear division of um, UBM. So that means the menswear oh, wow. under the trade shows at Magic and Project Market here in New York. And that's where I got to learn even more. And I could actually have a, it was a non-pressure relationship with Eric because I wasn't trying to sell him anything. <laughs> uh, and he could actually teach me about the brands that I had in my show um and that's really where we got to know each other a lot better i'd say after doing that time um and when eric had left sax and i'd left project we started talking a lot about like what to, what to do and kind of finding what we, what we what our passions were and we realized that combining both of our backgrounds where eric clearly knows fashion way more than i do um and my background of more kind of the the finance and consulting kind of structure piece then together we would form one very good individual So therefore, there came the the the, the name E2 came from that, and that's where it started. So, so we're now I think we're almost we're close to six months in in business now I think, which is cool. Yeah, Yeah,
1: just at liftoff, which is which is a great. uh, These are the salad days. (laughs) Um, Well, so um, you know, just kind of launching into some specific questions because you guys are such industry veterans um, and know the industry so well. You know, I've always found that the the transition uh, for a lot of brands, particularly young brands, to a more direct-to-consumer model um, is is both enabling because they have this obviously very direct relationship with their customer, but also potentially presents higher barriers to entry just because the, the more traditional model, if looking a decade or two in the past where Really, all you needed to do was design a line, somehow get it to a presentation or a show where wholesale accounts would see it. And then wholesale accounts would provide you essentially with the funding. And you could bridge some of that cash flow gap with factoring, but you had a real brand that was kind of out there. And if you had international wholesale accounts or or even just a national chain wholesale account, you were a brand and you were a brand to be reckoned with, at least in the minds of the consumer. Mm -hmm. Um, With direct-to-consumer presenting some barriers to entry because obviously having a robust e-com presence and having that fulfillment obligation where you're now shipping directly to the consumer is just more expensive. Can you comment on that? Do you view that as enabling for young brands, or is it actually restrictive and, and makes young brands have to fund more than they did in the past?
2: Well, I can speak maybe to the first part of the question in terms of the wholesale model, because I actually, for half of my career, worked on the brand side selling to the wholesale accounts, Saks and Barney's and Blooming's, and, and all of the, all those uh, great specialty stores across the country. And that used to be the pretty much your one and only way to enter the market was through that one channel and then once you were distributed through those channels then you might consider opening up your own store then you might consider selling on your own website and now the world is completely backwards i mean, it's it's just different now now they're entering through their own wholesale or their own e-com channel and then at some point looking to grow into a wholesale model or looking to open up their own uh, brick and mortar so it's it's interesting how it's it completely changed in in let's say the last 5 years really yeah, with, Warby, mean, Parker with Warby Parker or Bonobos being
1: great examples of that really starting as as almost online you know tech companies yes. that were pushing a fashion product but weren't what maybe we at this table would traditionally consider a fashion brand or design based
2: but they put all their energy into building their brand building their brand awareness and recognition through the online channels once they've built up this uh, this critical mass of followers and a certain size of a business, then then the wholesalers come knocking, like the Nordstroms coming knocking on the Warby Parker's door, and wanting to bring them in as an exclusive partner because they have a critical mass in terms of their business and their recognition. So now it's it's almost like again going exactly opposite the way it used to be. And so it just is very interesting to see how everything has evolved in the last, really in the last five to seven years.
1: Yeah. And, and Eric, do you think that it is still necessary for those brands that have a robust e-com um, platform and perhaps even brick and mortar stores to still have wholesale accounts or is that, and I think I know the answer to this because we've spoken about it at length, but, uh, you know, I'd love your views and then EJ, you can jump in.
0: See, I mean, I, I think that if you look at thinking about to the, to Eric's comments too, I think one, one thing that's changed in the last like five to seven years, if you look at like the, you know, but Bonobos, Warby Parker, those guys have been around now for a while and they started at a time where people weren't really looking at that online as a channel. So acquiring new customers wasn't as expensive. Whereas now, you know, Facebook, Google, whoever, they've caught up and said, okay, cool, we can actually charge more for this. Mm So now I think what you're seeing is a a development where as the cost of acquiring a customer online is becoming more expensive, they're going to the other channels too, whether that's like physical retail or a wholesaler to kind of get more customers. Mm -hmm. That is almost like a paid customer acquisition channel versus so, you know, I think if you saw, if the price, if the cost was as low as it was 10 years ago to get customers online, You'd see them do it all day long, but now they have to go into the other channels because it's kind of like it's not saturated, but it's it's not the the, the economics aren't there in the same way. Yeah. And so that kind of brings us back to the first part where you know younger brands that are coming online, the the real barrier to entry is the customer acquisition and how much it costs you to actually get those customers. That's my view at least. Um, and and I think I think you you can you can see that part happening right now too. Um, let's see back with your, your question was in terms of oh,
1: really in terms of the barriers to entry yeah but I, mean, young brands. but I mean th- but
0: i think that, that comes like you know it, i think the traditional model is like okay you get wholesale orders you can factor them you can sell them you can you can kind of finance upon them but now you're seeing you know companies like let's say like a hilden or those kind of to start to experiment with funding like e-commerce growth like they're doing more kind of the direct-to-consumer growth which is a riskier venture but it kind of comes with the territory that you kind of have to look at that mm-hmm. um one one part that i think I commented on, like during your class in, at nyu was one of my favorite like you know my favorite likenesses around this is one by brian Tranzo at wgsn yeah he wrote this piece um he has, a, he has a newsletter he writes and he wrote a piece kind of comparing you know what like the traditional model back to like the mma circuit of the 1990s where like either you did boxing or you did like jiu-jitsu or you did judo and it was like a which one was best whereas now anybody goes into mma they know all of them they all have muay thai they all have Brazilian jiu-jitsu they all know something like that so it's more like you have to be versed in everything to be able to be good today so i think it's not it's not a choice of where i think you can have a strength in one area but you probably need to have exposure on all channels whether that's your online e-commerce your your own retail brick and mortars and the wholesale i think you need to have a good balance of those i don't think anybody really really can't expect to achieve it achieve success on just one on one pillar alone unless you have a ton of money to do it yourself but i think you need to have like a you need to have a strategy that kind of encompasses all channels
1: and you know for our listeners uh, equal balance do you mean literally 33 percent each or do you think that it's no i mean i
0: think i think that all depends on your brand i think i mean i think i think certain brands do better online but i think it's good to have like if you look at wholesale to acquire customers maybe that's like you need to be in 10 really strong specialty stores, for instance, that really drive your brand. If you're a streetwear brand, for instance, maybe you don't have to be like a a hundred accounts across the country and you don't have to be in every Nordstrom, but for you to get that customers looking for something new, perhaps that's the place to go. And so that might be a smaller portion, but it still figures as a part of your business, I think.
2: Also, I think for positioning, when you're looking at your brand and, and, and how you want it positioned in the market, you want to pick those right wholesale accounts that put you in good company that expose you to the customers that are shopping for those brands, take a look at Kith going into Bergdorf. That's all about positioning. They could have gone into any other store, but Kith decided to position themselves and align themselves with Bergdorf to be put into the realm of those more advanced designers and that luxury customer, even yeah. though it's a streetwear brand.
1: Right. And, and I suppose that was always the case. But now more than ever, as you're looking at that wholesale account, almost being part of your your marketing spend
2: or exactly yeah exactly it's a marketing expense
1: well, well so back to to customer acquisition and that being you know potentially one of the barriers of entry do you view the rise of the influencer um, and sort of the star designer who, who may have began as someone of note perhaps in the menswear industry or, or women's wear if it's a women's wear designer, but with a following somewhat built in, who kind of pivots and becomes a a branded, you know, uh consumer product juggernaut, um, as as a viable model, or is that um a shallow model that, you know, will will easily be sort of upturned once the consumers realize if if the product is not up to snuff and not, not as good as products from other brands um, that, that they're not really getting what they're paying for.
2: I think it's the model of the future. I mean, it's definitely happening right now. We see it, but I see it as being incredibly valuable, incredibly important. I think of the New Guards group that has Off-White, Marcelo Berlan, Palm Angels, Heron Preston. They're building brands based on personalities that have big followers. Marcelo being a DJ. Um, Virgil Abloh also you know in the art world in the DJ in the architecture like these are people that are highly influential and they have an incredible breadth and, and of, of the way they were able to communicate to to their followers and so tapping into that fo- those followers and then building a brand around that in an authentic way which is a word that's often thrown away, around you know maybe a little bit too much these days but it really if you can have launch a brand with a built in following those 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 fans already built in, that's how you're going to succeed. It's it's very difficult to start with just a good product because quite frankly, there's lots of good product out there. There's too much good product out there. So you have to have a a, a real point of view something that, that uh, is is, is distinctively different than what else is out there. And so tapping into the personalities of these influencers is a way to do that.
0: Yeah. I mean, product quality is basically table stakes anyway. Like you kind of, you're, you're, it's, everybody a buys a, it's a given. It's a given. You should have that anyway. So if you come with something not that fine, it'll be very short-lived. But nobody really does it that way. And as say.
2: fashion director at Saks, I had so many brands coming up to me saying, oh, we we have such good quality. We have such good fit. I'm like, yeah, you and everybody else out there. Like, what's the big deal? That, that's a given. What's different about you? Like, our store is full of amazing product. What is different about your brand? And so you have to really tap into those... The thing that makes you influential. That's going back to the question about influencers. What makes you unique? What makes you different? Whether whether you're a DJ or an architect or a, you know, whatever that is, having that built in following.
1: Yeah. Well, perhaps relatedly to to customer acquisition. Um, I read recently that Adidas is doing a Beavis and Butthead uh, collaboration. And collaborations uh, have, have sort of reached a bit of an apex, I think. Um, you know, we, we see a new collaboration announced. We see several new collaborations announced weekly. Um, you know, what are your views on this? And do you think we have reached an apex or that it is a moment? You know for a brand to create sort of some media impressions and just get eyeballs on the product perhaps from a different perspective i'm not sure who the beavis and butthead sort of fan base is it's it's clearly a 90s I mean, probably me. If, if listeners don't know <laughs> <laughs> but um, yeah can you do could you could you do a quick impression I,
0: well no i i yeah. used to Come used on. to play that in the <laughs> 90s but no but anyway <laughs> but
1: um you know pulling in someone who was influenced by mtv in the 90s uh to to a brand which you know i think adidas is a juggernaut right that's a massive massive brand but uh, obviously they may have felt like this is this is good alignment for a short period of time and to create some media impressions around something that will will move the needle for us for a short time so what, what are your views collectively on on collaborations um have they jumped the shark and you know the brands that you work with do you encourage them to do collabs or not
2: I don't think it's quite jumped the shark, but it's getting close. <laughs> in my opinion, it's getting real close. That's a Fonzie Happy Days reference, it right? It is. Okay. I know. <laughs> We're showing our age there. Well, the other collab I read last
1: week was Greece, and uh, I forget the name of the brand, but they're coming out with a capsule collection based on Greece, which, of course, is 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 a movie from the 70s, but based in the 50s. So um, I'm not sure what audience you're going for there. A couple, perhaps. Sorry.
2: No, I, I actually like collaborations, but I do think... It's almost become too saturated. It's almost like another one, another one, another one. Like how you know, what does it mean anymore? You know, if they're done well and if if it's authentic to each brand's DNA in some in some aspect, rather than just for hype and just for buzz, then I think it it can serve a a, a very you know a good purpose.
0: I mean, some some part comes back to also with customer acquisition there too. It's it's a vehicle to acquire new customers for either one. And that's almost you can almost you could get some sort of economies of scale on that by just using combining forces, combining, you know, or even taking two halves of marketing budget put into one. So you're not spending all that money, both of you, but getting the same customer because everybody's going to have the same customer as well. Like, you know, anybody who buys a car also buys clothes, also goes to hotels and restaurants. So some part becomes like, why are we all spending that same dollar? We all spending a dollar, five bucks to get the same one. We could spend one, but one dollar to get the same one instead. So I think some part becomes just from that, the cost of doing business that you have to kind of do some collaborations and whether that's like with, between brands or with, you know, partners who serve the lifestyle of your customer, you know, from hotels to restaurants, to airlines, to cars, whatever.
1: Which do you think are more effective? The, the, the ones that are brands which are perhaps in the same product category but but different customers or adjacent product categories or or completely disparate product categories where you wouldn't necessarily think of it but um
0: but i mean so, some part it depends on what's your goal with it right like if you do like two very you know, kind of unlikely combinations then perhaps it's more for the media splash to get your name out there and not necessarily selling so much right where if you do i don't know i can't really do well let's say like rowing blazers and noah for instance yeah yeah, That's or, a pretty or, interesting or one.
1: Greg Lauren and Montclair. Yeah. Or, you know, these, these, not even Jason, categories, the same category.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. I mean, then it can make sense just kind of piggybacking on each other's brands and try to get, get after the customer and serve, serve better value to your customer perhaps. Mm-hmm. But I mean, I think it all comes into like, what do you want it to do for you? For some, like when it's always like, when it's a big, big brand and a small brand, you know, who's kind of benefiting or both are benefiting. One perhaps is getting more exposure. One being, okay, hey, we're doing something new. Mm-hmm. So... It's hard to say which one works best, but I think there's all examples of stuff that has gone better and worse.
2: Yeah, the legacy brands are trying to tap into the new, young, cool demographic. And the young, cool kids want to get the exposure that they can get with a legacy heritage brand. So it definitely benefits both. I think just going into that with a clear strategy, is this for marketing? Is this for brand awareness? Or is this to drive sales? And you got to be very clear. Both parties need to be very clear going into that partnership what that end goal is. Yeah.
1: Well, pivoting a little bit, um, you know, on the design side, I think, uh, we all work with designers and I feel like there's always been a little bit of a stigma, uh, in, in the design circles about being too commercial that you want to, to be a design, you know, to be Mm -hmm. a designer is not necessarily to be commercial. It's to be artistic, to be avant-garde, to, to have something walk down a runway that is unique. Mm -hmm. Um, With the with the rise of the influencer designer, do you think that that sort of mode of thinking is is fading into the past, or do you think that it's still present with designers? And then, as a as a follow up part of that question, do you think there's anything wrong with being too commercial?
2: I mean, Uh, again, I I don't want to keep on hogging the (laughs) the mic here, but (laughs) go for it, because I have a strong opinion about that. I think the influencer designers are more commercially minded. Than the designer designer mm-hmm. and i've worked with hundreds on both sides of that spectrum the designer designer often is so caught up in in the art of design that they would be just as happy hanging their product in a in, a, in an art gallery like to them it doesn't matter uh whereas the influencers are they're, they're more commercially minded they understand the commerce part of fashion and i found them to be to be a little bit more and when it comes to driving business and sales much more savvy and i've worked with some amazing amazing creative designers that are just so wrapped up in the art of it that they sometimes forget that you're going to be out of business soon if you don't start people don't start buying this at full price right <laughs> you know what i'm right. saying so
0: yeah I maybe mean, but i think you see more and more examples of designers who basically design a commercial line but then they have their name brand line is what what like the commercial line funds that mhm I think we all know some examples of that, but I I think that's a, that's a way to kind of, to make, they still, I think you you clearly still have to pay your bills. And so there's a portion of kind of figuring out that unless you have somebody with super deep pockets, it doesn't matter. doesn't mind what you do, then cool. But many, most people don't have that. Um, So, yeah, I mean, I, I think to, to to Eric's point, I think from, from the, the influencer designers also kind of know they have a finite lifetime. Mm -hmm. So the lifespan of their influence can also be finite. So it's kind of like, okay, how do I make the most of this while I have it? Yeah. I could see that be at So kind of building it yourself, so building yourself into a brand that can actually sustain yourself over a longer period of time.
1: What are some contemporary brands that, uh, that you guys like from, and I'll, I'll, I mean, that's a loaded question. So from a design perspective and, and, and product execution perspective first, uh, and then from a customer engagement perspective and business savvy, per se, you know, who's doing it right from the perspective of selling stuff.
2: One of my favorite brands that I've known and worked with for a couple of years is Axel Arigato, okay. the Swedish sneaker brand. Okay. I don't know, something about them, They they came into the market with a cool idea, with a great product, uh, you know, a very clear vision of who they are and how they wanted to position themselves, what channels they wanted to play in, whether that was e-commerce, whether that was wholesale or their own retail. They took a look at their own retail and turned that into their Instagram moment. It was built to be something that was gonna be shared through Instagram. And then being very selective about their wholesale partners and then really driving their e-commerce business. It's very rare that you have new young brands like that that are so savvy in all three channels and that were so strategic and cerebral about about market entry and how much they wanted penetration in those channels so for me axel arigato from from sweden is one of the one of the younger brands that i found emerging that that was doing it right
1: got it thanks ej eric
2: mean,
0: i have a hard time arguing with eric about that um no i mean i, I think there, i think there's several i think i mean from if i take it from sweden you know i i'd like like stutterheim like no that's a client of ours too but I, I do like them as as a as a brand they've been around in sweden for a long time and they've actually there's still somebody that's known i'd say like from in the fashion circle and they they've taken a category that's perhaps not the biggest one but they're really taking the forefront of that category right so there's rain jackets and not cheap, but not like overexpensive either, but very nice, very clean and very very Scandinavian in their approach. I think that's something that has that has wheels. I think we, we, I mean Eric and I have been very focused on like the Nordic market I think overall in terms of the the aesthetic and the, and the um the branding from there and I think that's that's something that's interesting in the market now. Um, but they've stayed true to who they are and I think that's a part to us where a, you can see a lot of people just kind of expanding to everything where this doesn't become genuine anymore. Mm-hmm. And I think Stutterhams really trade, I mean, they've stayed, you know, it's rain jackets, but I mean, like they've stayed very true to like the, any expansion they do is relevant to that category. Mm-hmm. And it's not something that's going to just go, 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 they're not going to do rain jeans yeah. <laughs> anytime yeah. soon. Do they do umbrellas? They do they umbrellas. Do. They do, oh, accept, yeah. I mean, anything like it's like rain wear, right? So it's like, yeah. it's really, it's umbrellas, hats and boots, like anything, like anything rain associated that's where they are. So I, I like that part. I mean, another person I think that does a good job here in the US is Todd Snyder. I think he does a good job with his collection and kind of working with third party like brands as well in his store where he doesn't necessarily need to produce anything, everything himself, but he kind of combines it with brands that fit into that lifestyle, Yeah. yeah. which I think is smart.
1: Yeah, his, his store, which I know we've all been yeah. to, mm-hmm. his, yeah. is, is really kind of one of these little mini malls. To a degree, but everything aligned with the Todd Snyder brand and a very comfortable environment to be in.
2: I went to a great book launch there not too long ago. Weird. It's a great book (laughs) called "The Laws of Style." I'm really impressed. Yeah, yeah. Well, that was a shameless plug. Shameless plug. Thank you. (laughs)
1: Um, Well, well, maybe flipping into the laws of style a little bit. So um, you know that 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 was my definitive work on uh, you know how service professionals uh, are are best advised to dress. Uh, for work and to uh, not only interact with their clients, but uh, also, you know, generate new client opportunities. Um, so you guys now on on the consulting side um, and with your clients and, and out getting new clients, how do you look to present yourselves sartorially? Um, and uh, do you follow the laws of style or do you... Uh, do you do you turn your back on them, as 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 non-lawyers and and yeah. you know non-finance people? Because my book is is quite specific mm-hmm. to a certain a certain segment of you know sort of the the third-party consultant world.
0: I follow whatever Eric says. <laughs> That's basically I get I EJ. get that like I have to like the whatever laws of EJ. The laws no. of EJ is
2: basically what rules this part. We call it, or I don't know, we call it, but you know, dress for your day. Mm-hmm. Look at your calendar. Who are you going to see? dress accordingly you know if you've got a presentation or if you're going to make you're making a pitch or if you're you know working from soho house i mean really dress for your day i don't wear jeans a whole lot although i am wearing jeans today but um but yeah just taking a look at who you're meeting with and then making sure that you're dressed appropriately and and that's very fluid and and that yeah, I like that I like that. And you know, I used to wear a lot of suits in my in my career. A lot of suits. I have a closet full of suits.
0: He does, and I use some stuff from there when <laughs> yeah. I, when I need to dress up sometimes.
1: You're, you're a little. I mean, Air, EJ and I are about the same height and weight, maybe, but you're you're a little bit of a total I, I
0: run a lot, so yeah. I try to keep into like that sample size is what I try to do, <laughs> and that's the only
2: reason why I do it.
1: Thirty-eight long.
2: There you go. Um, well, but so- I, I think a soft blazer. I mean, like if we're going to yeah. talk about professional, what what would that essential piece be? It would be some type of a. A soft blazer it doesn't have to be super st- constructed. A blazer that you can wear with with jeans if, if you're wearing jeans that for that day. But that's a, you know a knit shirt underneath it. You know you can't go wrong with that. You're still regardless of who you're meeting with, you're gonna you're gonna look put together. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, today you knew you were doing the podcast, um, and we can flip into a feature of every podcast, which are my four W questions about what you're wearing. Um, Ooh. So Ooh. starting with the first. W, just, just the what. For people who aren't watching on YouTube, if you could just quickly describe each of you, you know, what you have on from a product perspective.
2: Okay. EJ will start. Okay. So I've got a camel cashmere turtleneck and a kind of a hybrid knit blazer. So it's a a check in the front and then a knit sleeve, almost like a like a, a knit collar on there. And a pair of super tight jeans. <laughs>
1: Maybe a little too tight.
2: From Marcelo Burlon.
1: Are they skinny jeans? Yeah, they skinny, skinny jeans? jeans. Okay. With my
2: build, honestly, my, I, they just looks better on me. Yeah. Like the baggy boot cut, is just not right. And then a pair of suede Chelsea boots. Yeah. And That's a Shinola awesome. watch. Okay. Another brand that I'm a big fan. Well, of.
1: Well, I'll get to the W of who. Oh, so sorry. No, yeah. Oops. That's all oops. Right. Oops. <laughs> so Eric.
2: I hate following EJ.
0: <laughs> these This is the worst. <laughs> shirt. <laughs> my shirt, a shirt? I have a uh, uh button-down and a blue sweater. Blue is usually my color that I go for. Uh, a pair of, I guess distressed denim, also kind of skinny, and then a pair of uh, leather. What do you call these boots? Just regular boots. Chucka. Yeah, chucka boots. Chucka boots. There you
1: go. Okay. And so flipping to the who, but oh. staying with you, Eric. And okay. EJ, you can you can follow up. On. All right. So who who? makes each of these items throwback
0: the sweater is jay lindeberg and then saturdays is the uh the button down i have jean shop over the jeans and then trask are the shoes.
2: and ej oh so i'm wearing eleventy eleventy mm-hmm. which is an italian brand uh for the jacket and the turtleneck and then marcello berlon and then um aqua are the suede are the suede um waterproof chelsea boots
1: those are very nice and um A question that that often doesn't really get answered because I think for a lot of men, um, and I do have a lot of men on the show, um, the seasonality of of when things are produced is kind of lost on them, but you guys as fairly educated consumers here. Do you happen to know from what season and year each of these things uh, came from or any one of these items? And and it may just be your jacket that's relevant to that because Eric is wearing mainly basics. And everything but the jacket is kind of a basic. Yeah,
2: this is uh, the sweater and the jacket are fall 18, they're current season. And then the jeans are, um, these are two years old, I think. Okay. And then the the boots are fall 17.
1: Okay. Um, And then the why, I think we got to. I mean, you you knew you were being on the podcast, which is a fairly relaxed environment. Uh, You'd be in front of me, and we're all friends. So. You know, that sort of answers it. I also, you know, there's an adherence to the weather, of course. I mean, you sort of look outside. I now check my phone pretty mm-hmm. regularly. Um, I, too, have suede on. I was I was banking on no rain, and it looks like no rain. I mean, it, it said no rain, even though it was a foggy day here. Um, but, the, but there's always that. And I find, you know, in New York or Paris or London, you know, for these four season cities, you, you have that great benefit. Mm-hmm. I know you two have both spent a lot of time you know, overseas and also on the West Coast. How would you advise men who are in a city like Los Angeles uh, who, who maybe don't have the benefit or maybe they feel liberated by it? You know, it's not the benefit. It's just, hey, I don't have to dress for four seasons. But, you know, for, for the L.A. guy who's looking at fall, winter and saying, God, I love that pea coat," but when am I going to wear it? Mm-hmm. How does he up his sartorial game? basically in spring summer only
2: yeah I think he moves to New York <laughs> I, guess. I, guess. I, I honestly I just flew in from Columbia and I was in Miami and then Columbia South America uh, just this morning as a matter of fact and again I, as, as a person who works in fashion I'm always looking at what people are wearing and uh, literally it was 90% humidity and 90 degrees yesterday and in Miami also now going into their high season where it's extremely warm and humid and And, uh, you know, I I think it's looking at finding fall colors in lightweight fabrications like we did in one of our private label um, brands at Saks. We did a we did a fall linen specifically for the southern tier. So it was a great fabric that looked like a fall flannel, but it was actually 100 percent linen. So it had the breathability and the lightness. So if you're if you're, you know, in those warmer sunbelt regions, I would look for those lightweight fabrications in fall colors
0: but also if you want to like suck it up you buy it and you have it for that one time you go to new york i mean i've suede jackets i have like two three days a year i can actually wear them when you're really sure it's not going to rain outside but it's about like now 55 degrees to 60 and it's sunny that's cool i've had a couple of days yeah a couple of days but not often
1: it's it's a thing of beauty
2: you know who does it the best is italian men dressing in the summer like if you if you all have been to pity in the summertime yeah. does not matter if it's 103 degrees there they will have on the shirt the jacket the double-breasted the tie the accessories they do not alter they have no sweat but blends. the, but the yeah.
1: fabrication is also very it'll very be light. linen it'll yeah. be cotton online.
2: it'll be yep yeah. online it'll be half lined it'll be all adjusted but they will not skimp on on their look yeah. because it's warm out
1: yeah. i was just in american Paris. men
2: can learn yeah. from that
1: Absolutely. And and from Parisian men or, or French men. I mean, I was just in Paris where, you know, I sort of call it the city of scarf envy. Like I just, uh, yeah. yeah, I mean, I just don't have the the scarf game to, to, to go toe to toe with those Tough guys fun. because... Uh, you know, the folds they have, and it just looks so perfect. I wonder if they iron them. Or, yeah. You know, there's something about it. But, um, yeah, I think American men have a lot to learn from, from their European counterparts, for sure. Um, what other cities, you know, you both being well-traveled and, and you know, Eric, international, what, what other cities beyond the obvious ones do you think men execute well?
0: I mean, I'll go back to my hometown of Stockholm. I think they do it pretty well. I think there's, I mean, there's a certain sense of conformity in terms of what's fashionable, but it's usually very put, well put together and pretty clean. Um, and I mean, I, I kind of like that part about about the Swedish part, the Swedish sense of fashion. I think, especially like downtown Stockholm, or if you go to Gothenburg or Malmo, and Copenhagen too. Like all those places are pretty fashionable, mm-hmm. um, and you see. I'd say like the suiting Uh, suits are more so a a thing there than they are here. I feel like here, like the moment it was okay to wear like jeans and a jacket, it's like all right, done doing that. Like suits are dead. Whereas if you go to Europe, like the suit game is still there. Yeah. And pocket squares are alive.
1: Sounds tie though. Sounds tie, but pocket
0: pocket square kind of steps in for the tie a little bit. I, I felt that last time I was in Stockholm was in the summer. And I was walking around, so like everybody had a pocket square. I was like, "It's still alive, yeah. It's still here."
1: Well, and you throw on the scarf, which you know to, to to borrow from the Italian man who will wear a scarf in the middle of summer, mm-hmm. which is a, another scarf game I would love to mm-hmm. elevate to, but but can't seem to. Definitely, um, you know that can add a nice dash of color in in a pretty basic wardrobe.
0: But I, I say, I mean, if I may on that point, I think the one thing you get into it, having come into fashion from something was not fashion. I mean, going from consulting where you have like a pair of slacks and three shirts, that's what you go for a trip with. Then going from that to going to Pitti, well, the first time I went to Pitti was like, what, two and a half years ago? I think I packed like three suitcases because I had no idea. I had like, you know, eight different outfits and I was super nervous about it, which in retrospect was a little bit overpacking, but I think one one thing that I learned going into Jay Lindenberg was like also looking at accessorizing, bringing in those pieces that elevate your your suit or your jacket, like the, if it's a puffer vest or whatever. Like those are pieces you don't necessarily think about investing like unless you're into fashion, but they actually do help you quite a bit to kind of make your well, elevate your wardrobe so you can actually make more more variation to it. Yeah. And I think there's like people just don't know about it. Like the man at least, like the American man, I think doesn't necessarily know and doesn't really want to invest in it right now but they're getting there.
1: I mean I think for suits, uh, you guys can correct me if I'm wrong, but this is one of the laws, you know, that there really are four fundamental suits um that every man should have and and should overinvest in, you know, before you're buying a white linen suit mm-hmm. or an olive double-breasted peak lapel suit, you know, your navy blue pinstripe, your charcoal pinstripe, your gray flannel and just a navy blue suit. Um you know, just just over-invest in those. And mm-hmm. as you are able to afford better versions, you know, you can take those older versions and kind of zhuzh them up with a little, you know, you can change the lining. Mm-hmm. You can change the buttons. You can, you know, for your next... Navy blue pinstripe, maybe that's double-breasted instead of single-breasted. You know, mm-hmm. Maybe it's a three-button button profile. Maybe it's a one-button profile. But like, you can explore so much within that framework, always knowing you're going to look good, and always knowing that with other accessories, you can make that outfit into hundreds, if not even thousands, of outfits. Um, you know, uh, just based on accessorizing.
0: Mm-hmm. I think one thing that's becoming, I think, more. Difficult in a way. Suits are fairly—it's a fairly simple thing for a man to put on a suit and look good in it. Like, what we were up at visiting another consulting firm, a management consulting firm, and just seeing their office environment. Where, where they're in the office, it's very much like casual, but it's dressy casual, which like it's very hard to define what that means. Yeah. And you see these people walking around. Like some of them are very well put together. They have like jeans. They have the right tops. They have like you know like a nice cardigan. Whatever whatever they have on, like they, they put it together well. But then you see like the kids out of school coming in like 23 24 great at school all that stuff like they would fit well in a suit but coming in like not sure about how to dress themselves up in a way where casual is also dressing because you can make that happen yeah but it's it's more difficult and i think that that's coming more and more because if you look at just like where the dress code is evolving because they have to because people are not necessarily unless you're like in in you know banking and more like you look at traditional law firms like it's much more the suit and tie is kind of the, the given. Mm-hmm. Whereas if you go into really any any other corporate environment, like it's not necessarily that.
1: Yeah, Eric, I, I know that when you were at Saks, you were a big proponent uh, for kind of the new office wardrobe and and having Saks put out uh, some sort of a guidebook mm-hmm. on, a, on a seasonal basis mm-hmm. for that, which I think is 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 very important because, to Eric's point, um, I think the bar is very high in terms of level of difficulty. Executing business casual well.
2: Yeah, we launched this. It actually, I read in the it was the Wall Street Journal, and they were they listed five major banks that all went business casual. Mm -hmm. And like, I googled the number of employees at each bank, and it was hundreds of thousands, you know, possibly millions of people being told from one day to the next, like you don't have to wear a suit anymore. You can, you know, dress casual. Like that, that's a that's a daunting, you know, proposition for anybody. All of a sudden, because a suit is the easiest thing in the world. You put it on, you look great. It's flattering done. But if you don't get that little crutch, then it becomes very difficult. So we went through a whole initiative, came out with a guidebook for the new office casual, and we call it the new office casual because most of us aren't, you know, working just in an office environment. It could be on a train, a plane in in an automobile and in a cafe. So that's kind of like the new office casual could be anywhere. But when we tried to implement this with our own guidebook, and they said we have to we can't just talk the talk we got to walk the walk so we went out to all the associates around all the all stores across the country said hey guess what you too <laughs> can dress casual to work but these are the guides and there were five i think there were five or six rules or guides that we we felt like if they did that they'd be in good shape so the first saturday like was the first new office casual at at Saks <laughs> Disaster! It was like ah, <laughs> ah! Like everybody <laughs> went into a panic because it didn't right. work. It's hard, you know. Yeah. It's not the easiest thing in the world. But we had to, you know, you know, do another training. We had to send more detailed information out so that it. W- and it, you know, it took it took a few weeks to get right, but it finally did. But uh, so we were trying to, you know, assist our customers too that were faced with the same dilemma. Yeah. And you know, sometimes. The old guard would be afraid of, oh, we're not selling suits. that's the end of the world. We're not going to make any money. The truth is if you add up this knit, cashmere sweater and the knit blazer and the pants and the, all the suede shoes, you know that's going to equal much more than just a suit. You can actually make more sales by you know redoing the whole wardrobe in a way that's more relevant for today's life.
1: And it's arguably more seasonal. Because like the suits, Hundred percent. Right. Those four suits I described are seasonless, yeah. yeah. right? Yeah. So once which you is kinda, which is kind
2: of which is kind of amateurish. You know what I mean? Like if you, you know, if you're just wearing these basic suits all year round, it's a little little snoozy, a little amateurish. Whereas, like I think you you really look more professional and you look more interesting when you are dressing seasonally, um, in a way that's a little more casual but also professional at the same time.
1: So, what are some of those must-have items? You you mentioned the soft blazer, which I, I completely agree with, unlined. Mm-hmm. You know, um, can sometimes have a button profile all the way up the top, but but a nice sort of roll to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and and obviously knits. But you know, describe a few outfits that that either of you think are, are business appropriate, but still well within that business casual realm.
2: Yeah, I, I think the knit, whether it's a turtleneck or a mo- or or a, a crew neck or a, a polo knit or a Johnny collar knit. It's all they all look great underneath a soft blazer. We talked about patterned shirts too because the guys kind of thought, "Oh, I, it's either a solid or a stripe." You know, well, you can do different patterns. There's micro patterns out there. There's little micro prints, there's micro checks. So there's it's not just about solid shirts and stripe shirts. Um, we talked about the leather bag also because let me tell you, I have seen so many guys in nice suits and like a Jansport Nylon backpack on the subway, and you're just like, "Oh man, dude, you killed it," in a bad way, not in a good way. Right. (laughs) Um, And if you have that leather bag, whether it's a a tote or a briefcase or even a backpack, you still look professional. You still look put together. We talked about the hybrid shoe, so it's leather shoe on top, but maybe a more casual sole on the bottom. So Mm -hmm. it gives you that, you know, that professional but also casual vibe. Yeah. So those are the, some of the things that we talked about.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's this anecdote in the Laws of Style about uh, the closing of the Citicorp Travelers merger, and I'm not disclosing anything uh, insider here. And it's a very dated merger. But uh, the guy who produced the final document on the closing table, and this is back when you did closings all in a room, uh-huh. and there were probably 35 people in this room. Uh, he came in. He was well-dressed and everything, but he pulled the final document out of this old, like, Eddie Bauer mm. satchel bag. So it kind of read briefcase, but it was it was made of canvas. It was beaten to shit. He'd probably had it all the way through business school. Mm-hmm. And it just kind of took the air out of the room. Yeah. Like, there was no <laughs> hear reverence or ceremony I to it. You. And, yep. you know, when you're toting important documents for clients, I think um, – you know, it doesn't need to be the zero Hal Burton, uh, metal case, no. exactly, with the, uh, with the nuclear codes in it, but um, just a proper briefcase.
2: Yeah, and it should be leather. Sorry, it just yeah. should be leather. Yeah. I don't care what the model is, but it's got to be leather.
1: It's going to last
2: you forever. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, well, you know, there, there traditionally has been a, a big dichotomy, obviously, between menswear and womenswear. Um, we're seeing that shift recently. And there are now brands that position themselves completely as unisex. Is there a future in that? Do you think that that's just kind of a moment that is, um, you know, people are latching on to, to a moment where that's not only acceptable, but g- garners some press because, because of its newness? Or is that the future? Eric?
0: When I get that question. Um, <laughs> <laughs> it seems, seems weird.
2: Um, <laughs>
0: You know, I, I think I think there's a way to kind of position yourself to be attractive to the, the the younger consumer who does not necessarily look in the same way at kind of traditional gender norms. I think as like if you look at the today's like teenagers, for instance, like it's kind of like you're looking at like who's going to be spending going forward. Because I was I was talking to my wife the other day, where we we're saying like, you know all this talk about millennials, yes, it's the biggest generation, but they're actually 35 years old at this point. That's like the oldest millennial is 35 years old, so it's not like this like young it's not like it's like like spoiled 17 year old like it's not that so you look at like you kind of have to position yourself to say okay where what's that new growth going to come from and how can i do it how can i address that whole generation to what their priorities are and so i could say that like, going into there like, i have a hard time saying whether that's going to be like the future for everybody but i think for a good swath of that of that population is probably pretty relevant i'd say e-
2: E-J? yeah yeah i think there certainly is more synergy it between men's and women's collections. It used to be, you know, you would see the women's runways, and then a year later, you would see variations of that incorporated into the men's runway. Mm-hmm. Now, the, the, the there's not that distance between what you see on the women's runways and the men's runways. It's, it's, they're much more integrated. I like that. What I don't like is unisex clothing brands. Honestly, I just don't. I'm not really into it. I don't think I want to go into a store and and look on a rack and have like women on either side of me shopping for that same thing. It just doesn't appeal. I don't know to me, but I I do see those brands more and more of them kind of popping up. I don't know what the future is, uh, but I do think that there is just more comfort with young men and women buying from brands that incorporate the same elements, the same colors, the same details, the Mm -hmm. same motifs. Like that's totally cool to me but it's though it's those kind of it's those very minimal unisex boxy baggy like it doesn't really fit you know your body right because men's and women's body they're just different hello and you want something that's flattering on a man's body or on a woman's body so
1: what other trends are you guys seeing in the industry menswear or or apparel broadly considered that you think are um, worth noting
2: You're it. (laughs) Once again, let's see. There you go. Uh, The whole logo thing I found very interesting. The whole logo thing. And I think it came about because of fast fashion knocking off runway so quickly that a way for the designer brands to combat was to really tap into their own logo. The
1: legal protection of the trademark. Yeah, I mean, yeah. There's you no know, way to copy it Reinterpret the
2: logo, put it on there. It's like yeah. you can't copy it. You know, those fast fashion retailers can't copy your logo. And people will pay for that. They want credit for the, for the, the money that they're spending on designer brands. And so I think I, I kind of like these, these heritage legacy brands going after their own logo again now does what's the lifespan of that i don't know like it's kind of hit the apex i mean it's really i think it's just become such it's been so it's so in your face right now that i you know as you know in fashion one season you're in one you're not you're out so i think that may that may um, start to decline and that's one of the reasons why eric and i both like these nordic brands because they're not into that at all it's clean it's modern it's a little more minimal but still very you know very very chic and 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 cool looking, but absolutely no logos on on those, especially on those Nordic brands that we see right now.
0: I'd say one one thing that I see, I mean, if I look at your, your previous guest, Jack with Rowing Blazers, I think that's one part kind of tapping into a kind of a, you find out who your consumer is and really look at like that niche base. You don't necessarily make something for the broader audience. You're looking at like, okay, who is my base? And how do I talk to them in a relevant way for them? so whether i mean that can be anything but i think those like it's not i mean Rowan blazers as a as a concept is a it's probably not going to be you know all over the place like everybody's not gonna wear it but he's found he's tapped into this like this this audience that likes what he's doing with the brand and they like what he's doing they, they like that and he keeps talking to those to that group yeah. which i think is important i think this is really kind of focusing on that niche and i think that's you know, I would say like if, if anything, we've kind of seen like in our current political climate, that's kind of what is dominating, like finding your base and going for that base. And that's it's same. It's the same for a fashion brand, like finding like who your base is, what's your voice, who does it appeal to and just go for that.
1: What's interesting, too, is his base is also so wonderfully disparate, though. Yeah, yeah. You know, you see Japanese guys wearing it. You see guys who are skateboarders wearing it. You see guys who are wearing, you know, Kith. And Supreme with it, and then you see your traditional someone who was on the US rowing team or the Princeton well, crew.
0: In his story, you can have like there can be a twenty five year old guy and a seventy five year old guy and then find like finding finding like a, a, an item that they like. Because he's built on something, it's a feeling, it's a movement that he's built on, not specifically on who you are as a person physically. Right. It's more about like what is it you buy into the brand, which I think is pretty brilliant. Yeah.
1: Well, gentlemen, that's a wrap. All right, Thanks well, so much for coming in. Thank you. Thank, uh, you, thank you for having for us. Fun. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, listeners, uh, please take a look on YouTube. You can you can watch our glorious faces and even see some of these items. Um, and uh, please follow me at Hand of the Law on Instagram uh, and Twitter. Any shout-outs from you guys um, other than maybe the Movember Foundation and, and my mustache? But, uh, you know, any follows from you guys or shout-outs otherwise?
2: Yeah, you can follow me at, uh, at EJNY.
0: And, on me Instagram. At, and me and at, Twitter. at Eric Ulan, one word, with K on Instagram. That's basically where I am. You can see my m- morning run pictures all the time and get annoyed. That's what I want.
1: <laughs> I'm annoyed because I live two blocks from you
0: and I'm Welcome. not running with you. We <laughs> did run once, so there's once, that. Once, yeah. there that <laughs> all right. Thanks, everybody. Thank <laughs> you. You've been listening to The Laws of Style with Douglas Hand. For more information, go to our website at www.cdc. H-B-A-L-L-P And you can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter
2: at at hand of the law. Thank you for tuning in and stay stylish.